Lord, I pray that this morning would be about you. And that in these moments that we get to celebrate Christmas, that we would remember that the precious gift you gave to us in your son, Jesus Christ, is the only gift we ever truly needed. God, I thank you that throughout all of eternity, we'll be able to lift our voices and celebrate with brothers and sisters from around the world from all time that there is one God who sits on the throne and one lamb who is worthy. God, take our worship and make it acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Can't wait. You can apply that to anything you want to apply that to. What, what is it that you can't wait for? Like, this is the time of year for that, right? I mean, there's a lot of things, and I, and I put a few of them in the email yesterday, some of them in jest, some of them not in jest. Can't wait. I can't wait for summer. <laughs> We're a little early on that, but that's cool. Um, got a while. Can't wait. Some of you are sick and twisted. Can't wait for the first snow. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Just cuz. Just cuz. Can't wait. Can't wait for mom's apple pie. Can't wait for the Christmas cookies. Can't wait for the Baltimore quarterback to come back so the game changes a little bit, right? See, you thought I was joking, and then yesterday the game happened, you were like, he's right. I know I'm right. I'm waiting for Tom Brady to return. Still won't happen. <laughs> Our can't-wait meter is always active and yet seldom satisfied. You see it happen on Christmas morning, don't you? Oh, I can't wait to open that gift. Because if I get the gift that I want, that one gift that I've asked mom and dad for for years upon years upon years, and in my mind I've imagined it to be, and then it ends up being one of those weird Amazon things where it's like, I imagine this awesome jersey, and it comes up and it's a little doll jersey, and you're like, Ugh. Anything that's not God feels like that little doll jersey. Can't wait, though. Can't wait, I'm dialed in, I can't wait, I can't, the Israelites waited and waited and waited and waited, they waited through all of the prophecies, and then you get to the end of the Old Testament, and then there's 400 years without a word from God, and the Israelites waited, and they kept saying, I can't wait, because as I read the Old Testament, as I see the Old Testament, what I see is that, that God is going to be faithful to his promise, and he is going to provide for us the Messiah, can't wait. I can't wait till the Messiah comes on the, on the scene. I can't wait till the Messiah wipes out those crazy Romans. I can't wait till he teaches that Caesar a lesson or two. And then he showed up. He did exactly what God had promised. He did exactly what the people needed him to do most. And the people said, that's not what we were waiting for. I had another picture, another idea, another understanding in my mind. That's not what we were waiting for. <laughs> if you came this morning and you expected a traditional Christmas message, that's not happening. That's Friday night, or sorry, Saturday night. I'd love to have you. The whole idea of 
waiting for something, having full-on expectations, understandings, and interpretations, and then them not turning out the same way we expected is really tied very closely, <laughs> I can't wait to see faces, to how the book of Revelation unveils itself. Oh, yes. Merry Christmas. We're going to the book of Revelation. <laughs> Revelation chapter 4. Let me be super honest. The study of Revelation is always off. I'll say often. I won't say always. Sidetracked because of the, the difficulty to understand what's happening in some of the minutiae, some of the details. I mean, there's 100-pound hailstorms. There's plagues. There's numbers that people think are super important. Then there's a, some freaky monster-looking things. And then, in fact, a dragon tries to eat a baby. So you read through the book of Revelation, you're like, I'm, I'm going back to Timothy or Titus. I don't, I want to simplify it for you. I've done this before, but I think, I think Revelation, the message of Revelation is the message of Christmas. And I want to show you that. As you honestly read Revelation, it can get repetitive and boring, to be honest with you. I know some of you are like, no, as I see it, I see it. No, it's repetitive and boring because when you ask the questions, what is that? The answer should be, I don't know. That makes for a really boring Bible study. The problem is, is we filled in those blanks with all the answers that we have heard from other places, other people, other ideas, so that we can seem really smart. In fact, the most common blank that has been filled in over the history of interpretation of Book of Revelation is, so who is the Antichrist? Oh, it's the Pope for sure. No, 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 it's Mikhail Gorbachev. No, 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 you don't understand. It's Oprah. <laughs> you can tell we've been doing the study of Revelation wrong. When in the year 2022, you try to find a resource, which I tried to do for a brother this week, who asked me last week, can you find a resource on the book of Revelation that's modern and contemporary in its understanding and applies to today's age. And when you look, there are countless studies of Revelation that are now outdated. You know what that means? When a Bible study gets outdated, you did it wrong. So let's not get distracted. Let me encourage you. When you read through pieces of the book of Revelation, what you are going to find is the story of Christmas. Go to Revelation chapter 4 to begin. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. Now immediately I was in the spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on that throne. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and a carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Okay, hold on. Don't get distracted by the emeralds. Don't get distracted by the carnelian. Don't get distracted by the jasper. Don't get distracted by the rainbow. Don't get distracted by the minutia. Don't get distracted by the details. Instead, stand back and understand that what John is doing in this moment is saying, you should see the sunrise. Let me try to get a picture of it. And then you look at the picture. How impressed are you with the picture? Seldom are you impressed with that picture. John's using the most beautiful language he can come up with in that moment so that the people who are reading his communication here in the book of Revelation go, that is magnificent. 
Friend, what I want you to understand is it's not about those details. Don't get distracted by it. Understand that John is, des- is describing someone magnificent. Verse 4, around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Time out, please. I know it's hard to erase from your memory, but we're not talking elders like Doug Blackston dancing as the Lord's a-leaping. <laughs> I got a woo, I know where Kelly is. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're talking about. Don't get distracted by who these people are, and, and even more so, get wrapped up in the fact that this is a big event. Verse five, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Okay, hold on, what? Don't get distracted by these freaky creatures. Now, here's a good rule of thumb as you read apocalyptic literature. As you read through the book of Revelation, a really good rule of thumb is if there's creatures who are looking at someone or something, you should look to the same place. Verse 8, each of those four living creatures, six wings, they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders would fall down before the one seated on the throne, and they would worship the one who lives forever and ever. They would cast their crowns before the throne, and they would say, Lord, our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and they were created. Friends, what Revelation is telling us, not just here, but in many other places, is that God alone is worthy of worship. There is no other. Don't, don't get distracted by the chaos of the book of Revelation, even more so. Don't get distracted by the chaos of your life. Don't chase down all the minutia and the little details be like i've got to understand this no what you need to understand is there is one who is worthy of glory and honor and power there's one who is worthy to receive your praise there is one who created there's one who deserves the worship there is one who is holy there is one who is sovereign that's been true forever and yet and yet Genesis chapter 3, man decided to make a claim that wasn't his to make. He chose to push God off the throne to claim self-rule, push aside God's love and care, and he then set himself up as the authority. And what has happened since then is we have continued to worship not the one and only true God. We have taken the worship that only he deserves, and we have given it to another. Many times we've given it to ourselves. Revelation deals with that as well. You know if you've tried to slug through Revelation in chapter 6, it talks about the seal judgments. It talks about the scroll that as you unravel it and unfold it, as you tear off the seal, the next judgment would happen. And so the picture is continuing and advancing judgment in, in the world. Then you get to chapter 
8 and the, 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 the um, judgments of the trumpets. And with each blast of the trumpet, it just gets worse. And if you have ever had a child play trumpet, you understand that judgment. <laughs> you get all the way up to chapter 16, it talks about the bowl judgments. And as the bowl is emptied out, it's poured out on all of creation. And again, we can get lost in all of those things. Is it chronological? Is it, is it uh, literal? Is it it's growing in intensity. What does that mean? What does it mean about the locust, the dragon, the frogs, the false prophet? Are the numbers actually meaningful? Here, let's stop. Because when you focus on that level of detail, you've missed the bigger picture. The truth of the matter is this. It doesn't matter if the locusts are Apache helicopters or who Babylon is at the moment. It's a severe judgment. It's an intense judgment. The power and might of the one who sits on the throne is revealed as he brings judgment on man. And what we need to understand is man's rebellion against God is deserving of judgment. It's amazing. As you read through Revelation, you see God bringing his judgment upon the rebelliousness of humanity. You see God judging mankind for their rebellion against him, for their sinfulness against him, and yet the people don't run to him to plead for mercy. Look, look at Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Put that up on the screen here. It says this, the rest of the people who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons in idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, cannot hear, cannot walk. They didn't stop worshiping their false idols even though God was continuing to pour out his wrath on them for their willful rebellion against him, they continued in their willful rebellion. And so judgment continues. Look at uh, chapter 20. I'll start in verse 12. It says, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and there were books that were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead, they were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment is horrible. You know how horrible it is? Over the last 30 or 40 years, people have tried to write hell out of the Bible. It doesn't seem fair that God would judge people like this. No, God's judgment is just. He has told us clearly that judgment is coming. This isn't a surprise. It's not like he springs this on us at the last second. He's told us clearly, judgment is coming, and he has given us an escape. And actually, what I just read kind of lays it out there. You have an option, as it were. God's judgment is based on one of two things. You can be judged based on the book of life, or you can be judged out of the book that has your works recorded in it. And I know many of us are like, well, well okay, cool. I've been working really hard. I'm going to give this a go. Bad choice. Because if you're judged out of the, the book of works that you've done, 
That last judgment was describing what your future is, what your eternity is. The only ones that live in God's presence for all of eternity are found written in the Lamb's book of life. I do. I wish hell didn't exist. I've said that before, and I mean it. I wish with everything in me that it didn't exist. But it does. Because sin exists. I'm, I'm thankful for God's mercy. I'm thankful for his relentless pursuit of me so that I could spend eternity with him, not in hell. And now because of God's mercy and pursuit of me, it's my job to, to, to not try to explain the way the things that are clear in Scripture that just make me uncomfortable, but to join God in his relentless pursuit of other people who are walking face first into the full wrath of God. It's my responsibility to speak of the glorious redemption that can be ours. And that redemption can only come from one place. Because God sent a Savior just like he said he would. Look, look at chapter 5 with me. You, you, this is going to sound vaguely familiar. Chapter 5, starting in verse 8. When the Lamb took the scroll, those four living creatures, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and each one had a harp. That's where harps come from, evidently, right there golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they, they sang this new song to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says this. These are the ones, the ones who are in white robes, are the ones coming out of this great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Right after Adam and Eve made the decision that they knew better than God. God came looking for them in the garden. Remember that story, right? And the voice that you hear from God, I've said this and I mean this, the voice that you hear God speaking with is really important to how you view God's pursuit of you. I think too often we've grown up hearing, where are you? You moron, what have you done? Look at this, you just totally wrecked everything. When in fact what you hear is a heartbroken God who says, Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? Oh, man. Those fig leaves just aren't cutting it, bro. Who told you you were naked? Why are you suddenly filled with shame? What have you done? As God speaks to them and draws out of them the confession of their willful rebellion against him in the garden, God's next act sets the course of the entire story of Scripture. Yep, there's 
judgment. There's consequences to behavior. All of that. But before God leaves them, it says he provides animal skin for their covering. See, what God has done is made the first sacrifice. Taking the life, spilling the blood, but not the life or the blood of Adam or Eve. That's mercy. He took the skin of that animal and he covered their shame. Just a little taste of what was to come. When the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, marched up the hill of Golgotha, carrying a cross that was meant for you and me, bearing in his body the full wrath of God, taking our place, dying for our sins, so that we might be at peace with God. God sent a Savior just like he said he And we have redemption. We have salvation. And it's all because of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you read Revelation, you see that all over the place. But here, here is what you and I need to understand. The story doesn't just end with redemption. God has promised more. It's like a terrible infomercial. But wait, there's more. For $14.99... Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Let me read verses 1 through 5. And this is where we will land. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I also saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. This, they will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. He also said, Right. Because these words are faithful and true. Which, which let me just throw that in. When, 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 when the one sitting on the throne sees John after this great explanation of what is happening in front of John, it's, it's almost as if God's like, hey, hey, John. Hello, John. Write. You're supposed to be writing these things down. And then you can picture John just like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to write. What's he writing? He's writing something amazing. He, he, behold, behold, God is making everything new. He's renewing everything. He's restoring everything. This is a, almost like a recreation. What is, what is, answer this question in your head. 
What is the most beautiful thing you have ever seen? Just, just like, if, if you were at a snapshot in your mind, you're like, I never want to forget that. What is the most beautiful thing you have ever seen? Guys, bonus points if you're like, hey, baby, it's you. Okay, so there you go. But no, what's the most beautiful thing you've seen? You know that there is a thick filter of sin on that. So for me, and there's, there's reasons for it. There's memories attached to it and all kinds of stuff. But, but looking up at the night sky when there's no lights, no clouds, long enough to feel like the sky has come down on you. Now, if you've done it, you know what I'm talking about. My wife and I used to do this a long time ago. We would just lay out in the yard and look up. And after a while, it felt like the sky was like right here. I'm just mesmerized by the placement of every star. And in my head, thinking God knows each one by name, he actually has placed them exactly where they are. Nothing's happened by accident. Abraham looked at these same stars. Jesus looked at these same stars. My children and my grandchildren are going to look at these same stars. And then realize that is just a mess because sin has completely blurred all that. And yet it's still that overwhelming to me. And what what God is saying is, I'm going to step in, and I am going to remove the filter of sin, and you think that sky blew you away before? Just wait. Oh, can't wait for that. But as awesome as that is, as overwhelming as that is, that's not it. So not only does he recreate things, but he... He removes things. Now, if you, you, you heard me read a few of them, and you may not have seen them, but let me, let me run through them. So chapter 21, verse 1, says, The sea was no more. Then verse 4 of chapter 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. And I'm going to turn ahead just a, a page here in my Bible. 22, um, verse 3. There'll no longer be any curse. Verse 5, night will be no more. So, so, so not only does God renew everything and recreate everything and restore everything, but here he begins to remove things. And what is he removing? Well, you look, some of them make sense, right? Some of them make complete sense. He removes death and mourning and crying and pain and the curse. Okay, those make sense. But there's two in here. You're like, wait, night? Why is he going to remove night? Well, what he's removing is the dependence you would have on anything or anyone besides him. You won't need to depend on light because the radiance of God's glory will keep the place plenty bright. Night will be no more. The sea? It says the sea is no more. Hey, salt life. I looked that up to make sure. I was like, I don't know what that means. I think this is a good time to use that. I don't know. But I, I like the beach. And I mean, bald guys in the beach tend to not go well. Nothing worse than a peeling bald head. Very attractive. 
And I like the beach. I love playing in waves. I am a 48-year-old man. My wife and I went to St. Augustine, Florida during the summer, and we went out on the beach because nobody else was there, and she actually was willing to get in the water with me because nobody else was there, so we got in the water. And then these huge waves are coming in, and I was splashing around like I was seven. And my wife was with me. And tells me, like, the water's warm. Sharks like warm. I'm out. Um, so it was short-lived, but it was fun. <laughs> Why? Why would he remove the sea? Maybe this will help. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 says this. Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. Oh God, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And then he says, just in case you were worried they would pop back up like the Loch Ness Monster, I got this. No more sea! This is the picture of God's full forgiveness and care and love for you. Sin and its curse is gone. All of the byproducts of sin, death and mourning, are gone. <laughs> Can't wait for that. But there's still more. I believe with all of my heart that the most precious gift that you and I could possibly be given is in verse 3. This loud voice from the throne saying this. Behold, God's dwelling is with humanity. Huh. In that moment, our faith becomes sight as we see his face. This right here is the fullest expression of everything God can provide. This right here, the fact that God is dwelling with humanity, is the full satisfaction and completion of Christmas. Because Christmas is about Emmanuel. But so is Revelation. Oh, you'll call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And after all of these years, after all of the heartaches, after all of the tears, all of the difficulty, all of the sacrifices, come on, you're there. You, you live the same world I live in. You drive in the same traffic. You tried to go to the mall this weekend with all three stores that it has. Somehow still had 40 million people there. You... you, you you are trying to make ends meet. You're trying to build the relationship with that kid who just doesn't get it. You're trying to make your marriage work. You're hearing hurtful things from other people. You're screwing it up every day just like me. At least I hope so or else we're sitting in the wrong seats here. We need to switch. And after all of that frustration, after all of the unanswered prayers, Through all that waiting, all that loss, all that grief, all that sorrow, all of that lamenting, the declaration 
to those Israelites who had waited for hundreds and hundreds of years, waiting for this Messiah to come, came out of the mouth of angels when they said, today is born to you a savior. Go find him in a manger, right? You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Go, go find him in a manger. But the declaration of the long-awaited eternity for you and I is, is the announcement from God himself saying, God is with you. Like right here. You don't need to go find him in a manger. He's right here. In fact, he is dwelling with you. That word dwelling with you in 21, verse five, 3, is tent. He lives right here. Right here. He lives right there. I can point to where he lives. In fact, he is so very close to you that in that moment he can walk out of his dwelling and approach you and reach down with a tender, compassionate care and get that last tear that might be remaining on your cheek. Revelation is a picture of the great and awesome God who we have rebelled against, bringing upon ourselves just wrath and judgment. It's a picture that God rescued us in Jesus Christ, but Revelation is about hope, the confident expectation that because God is so very good, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from sin. So, so that means soon, and, and when I say soon, very soon, we'll see him. We'll stand before him, or, or we'll fall before him. Can't wait. I'm pretty sure that one will satisfy. Merry Christmas. Father, thank you for the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the price that he paid for our sins, for our transgressions. Thank you that he took our place and he did so willingly and with humility. God, I pray for the one who's here this morning who, who may not know you as Savior, may not know that you sent your son to be on a rescue mission for him, to redeem them from your, their sins. Father, would they experience the freedom that you offer by confessing with their mouth what their life has declared each and every day, that they are separated from you in their sin and helpless to do anything about it. May they simply cry out with their mouth the name of Jesus. Father, as we close our time together, I pray that you would fill our eyes full of who you are. Fill us with awe. Fill us with enthusiasm and excitement, knowing that, yes, our redemption is here. We've been saved. We have life. We have freedom. But there is still yet coming something incredible when we get to dwell with you for all of eternity. You. The one who created all, sustains all, redeems all, and will restore all. God, may we live in awe of you. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.